following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I remember in 1989, which is a long time ago now, I went to hear Billy Graham preach in London. And I don't have any idea what he preached about. I can't remember that. But what I did remember was there was a man there who was his gospel singer, George Beverly Shea, who, um, who sang before Billy Graham preached. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He sang this incredible old gospel hymn and what power it struck me with. Uh, what amazing words. And this morning we're going to think about why Jesus Christ is so precious to us. That to own him, to have him as our saviour is more important than all the fame and all the money in all the world. You can be the richest human being in the world with all the dollars you like and all the shares. But if you know Jesus, you're a billion, billion times richer than he is or she is. You see, wealth is to know Jesus, to have your name written in heaven. But the thing is, we don't come into a right relationship with God automatically. We have to be reconciled to God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to think about this, uh, this morning. So we come to the book of Romans. And this notion of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and his blood. So this is the passage. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know, says Paul, that... Uh, this is chapter 3 of Romans, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jesus. Paul packs a lot in in one place. So I've got five headings. I'm not going to be able to say everything that this passage has, but I want to pick out five things and explain them. So the first heading I've got is condemned by a holy God. First point. The second one is that the law matters, but it cannot save. The third one is righteousness apart from the law. The fourth heading is a penalty paid by blood. And fifthly, righteousness a gift to receive. So let's think about the first one, condemned by a holy God. Now if you want to buy a diamond ring and you've got lots of money and you go to an expensive jeweller's 
Uh, you select the ring that you want to have a look at. Uh, and quite often, if you go to an expensive jeweler, it's not that I've ever done this, I don't think. Um, but you, when you speak to the store assistant, they get the ring out with the diamond on it. And they roll out a black piece of cloth and they place the ring onto it. You see, they know that diamonds look most stunning when they are shown against the black background. It's as if all sorts of colours and depths to the gem begin to appear. Things that can't normally be seen. And you know, the death of Jesus Christ is like that. Without the context of the cross of Jesus Christ, this event that happened 2,000 years ago, it can seem like a strange event. In fact, it's quite amazing that many of us wear a cross as a piece of jewellery when you think about it. Why do we wear around our necks a symbol of brutal, barbaric execution? But we do. You see, to understand the cross of Jesus Christ, you have to fill in the background behind the cross. And when you do, then the cross itself begins to make sense. And we begin to see the event of Calvary uh, against the black background of the human condition in all its richness and power and beauty. And that's what I want to do this morning a little bit. Think about the black background at the beginning. Why do we need to, to have a cross Now, to understand our passage, let me um, briefly summarise the Apostle Paul's train of thought in Romans. You see, it's quite difficult to speak on the book of Romans, because Paul begins at the beginning of the book, and his train of thought goes all the way, at least, to the end of chapter 8. It's like one continuous thought. I imagine him not putting down his pen, or if he dictated, uh, finishing his dictation until the end of chapter 8, because it's one continuous train of thought. But to get the black background behind this passage behind the cross of Jesus Christ, we have to understand something of Paul's line of thought. And I think we can say that the thought that ends up in chapter 3 with the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus' death as a propitiation, I think it begins in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I think it begins in chapter 1, verse 16, with the wrath of God. And he tells us in that verse that God's wrath and condemnation is revealed against the person who sins. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. And his point is that sinners are in a state of condemnation before God. Now, if I was to ask you a question, if you were to get all the dictionaries of all the world here, and we were to search through them for the, the word that best describes the very essence of God... What would it be? We might come to love. And certainly I think that God is love. And the Bible tells us on three occasions that God is love. But I think there's a better word that describes the very essence of God. And it's this, that God is holy. He is thrice holy. God is utterly pure. He is utterly clean. He is completely just. He is incorruptible. And he is utterly separate from all sin. And all evil. And here's the thing that because God is holy, He must and He will punish sin. He will punish sinners. And so Paul begins Romans, and Romans is called the constitution of the Christian faith. It's the Everest of the of, of the Christian faith. It is the it is the place where we really understand what the life of Jesus Christ is all about. It's the book of Romans. But it begins in Romans one by declaring that God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then in chapter 1, this is a brief summary, but in chapter 2, 
Paul goes on to argue that both Jews and Gentiles are condemned by God's law, which they've broken. So Jews are obviously God's people in the Old Testament, uh, and Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So Paul says that Jews are condemned because they've got the written law. We might call that the summarized by the Ten Commandments. But Gentiles have also got a law, Paul argues. They have a law that's written into their constitution, into their conscience, into their heart. It's as if we have this innate sense that some things are just wrong. And you find that in all times and in all cultures. So Paul makes this claim that in the end, nobody can claim innocence before God because we're under one of two laws. The Jews, the law of uh, the written law, And Gentiles, the law written on the conscience into the heart. And then in chapter 3, Paul argues that there is no one who is righteous, not even one in the whole world. It's a very shocking statement. It's highly offensive to our day and generation. But there is no one in the whole world who is innocent before God. Everybody is guilty. And everybody, therefore, is under God's righteous condemnation. And then by the time you get to chapter 6, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. If you are a sinner, you will die. Eternally die, we could argue. We could make that point. But here's the point. Before a holy God, who is the judge of the world, we all stand condemned because we've all broken God's law, both Jews and Gentiles, and we're all sinners. So this is what we would say is that the human dilemma, our, our dilemma is not that we're too poor. It's not that we're too weak. It's not that we lack sufficient education. Our, our dilemma is that all of us are heading for an encounter with our creator And our judge, on the day of judgment, when we die, uh, perhaps, but certainly on the day of judgment. And here's the dilemma that how can any one of us possibly survive that encounter? Especially since God demands perfect righteousness for anyone to enter his holy heaven. Now at this point, and this is an objection that many people raise today. They wonder why it takes a cross for us to be forgiven, as we shall see later on. But people begin to say something like this today. Why can't God just forgive sin and be done with it? Why can't he just dismiss us from his judgment um, without any consequences? Why can't he open the gate of heaven to everybody? Which is what we call universalism. And here's the answer. that This is my my best answer today anyway. Um, For one thing, God can't go against his character. God is perfectly just. When you say, can God do anything? The answer is, he can do all his holy will. He can't go against his character. God can't do everything. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't die. He can't deny himself. If God just allowed us into heaven, he would overrule his justice. And if he did that, then he would would cease to be God. You see, because God is just, sin must be punished. You see, if we think that God can just overlook sin, then we fail to appreciate the magnitude and the seriousness of human sin and evil. You know, how God reacts to sin tells us an an enormous amount about his character. Let me suggest something to you. This is something I did about 25 years ago. My kids think this made me a bit morbid. But I spent a year of my life, I did other things as well, but I spent a year of my life studying the history of the 20th century. The wars, the the bloody revolutions, the, the genocides, the death camps, the manufactured famines, millions murdered, millions tortured. And having studied the 20th century for a year, then ask what kind of a God would God be if he could face human evil 
and shrug his shoulders and issue some kind of unprincipled pardon and say, it doesn't matter. Can you imagine a little girl is raped and murdered and eventually the accused man is arrested and he's brought to court and the judge says to him, how unfortunate, you really shouldn't do something like that. But I know it wasn't really your fault, you're as much a victim as the little girl, Uh, you had a bad upbringing, you had a difficult mother, you didn't have a father at home, so this time I won't punish you, as long as you go and get some counselling for your condition, to address your inner deficits. But please, just don't do that again. And he's released. You see, if that happened, that judge would lose the respect of every moral being in the universe within a second. And here's the reason. What he will be saying, in effect, is this, that that little girl has no value, that in the end her life doesn't matter. And can you imagine if God witnessed all the horrors of history, all the wickedness of history, and his response was some kind of unprincipled pardon? What he'd be saying, in effect, is that nothing in his universe had any value because what was done to his creatures didn't matter. They have no value, and at that point he would cease to be God. And he would certainly cease to be a God that you could respect and that you could worship. I am grateful that God is holy. I am grateful that God is just, because if he wasn't holy and just, I could never trust him. You see, for God to be God, he must and he will punish sin. But that means that he will punish your sin and my sin. No one is exempt. So my first point is that we stand condemned by a holy God. My second point is this, that the law matters, but it cannot save. So I'm just going to read again. So in verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's verses 19 and 20. So Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And he knows that the Jews believe that they possess something that distinguishes them from the other nations of the world. It's that they have the law of God. So if we keep this simple, they have the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Now I know that many people deny this today. There's this new perspective on Paul. I've studied it in great detail But I'm fully persuaded that the Jews believed, in spite of the new perspective, I'm fully persuaded that the Jews believed that the law could be used like a ladder to get them to heaven. They put a rung, a foot on each rung of the ladder. And as they climbed the ladder, they believed that they could get to God. They would not refuse to bow down to idols. They would keep the Sabbath. They avoided murder. They avoided adultery. They refused to covet their brother's wife. And as they did these things, as they kept the law, they could Climb the ladder to heaven. So along with possessing their Jewish status, their ethnicity, they believe that the law gave them a means to get to God, to get to heaven. And Paul makes the argument here that rather than bumping you up to heaven, that actually the written law does exactly the opposite. The opposite. It actually condemns you to fall off the ladder. So he says, and the, so uh, that's the Jews... Um, trying to use the law. They thought they had this great thing that could get them to God. But the Gentiles have also have a law which is written into their hearts, as we've seen, and it condemned them too. So Paul says, now we know what, what the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? 
according to Paul, the whole world. The man with the Bible, the woman with the Bible, and the, the man or the woman without the Bible are both under God's law. One is written, one is in the heart. That the whole world will be accountable to God. Now, the point that we really come face to face with um, is that Paul is saying that before God, all human beings are guilty. You see, there is no law of God which is separate from God himself. The law is the outshining of God himself. When you're confronted by the law, you're confronted by God himself, who is the moral being um, behind the universe. And then when that happens to you, then every mouth is stopped, he says. You think of the mouth being closed. Some people never know when to close their mouth, do they? But Paul is making the point that on the day of judgment, when our sin is before us and we see it in all of its horror, uh, I used to listen to an evangelist many years ago when I was a child and he used to say, this is the day of judgment. Whether he's right or wrong, I don't know. He would say, the whole world is there waiting for judgment. And one person comes out at a time and, the, and, a, and a movie, a film of the whole of your life is displayed to the whole world. Now, uh, there's a lot of speculation there. But the point is that at that moment, your mouth will be stopped because you will no longer be able to justify yourself and say, I'm innocent. Of all the charges against me, I'm not a sinner. Nobody in all the world would be able to say I'm not a sinner. You see, the law, this idea that we can keep God's rules and we can, we can obey his will and somehow be righteous enough for heaven. If we think that we're deluded, Paul is saying, and we have to look elsewhere away from the law and our keeping of it for salvation. There's an evangelist called Ray Comfort. Uh, he's from New Zealand. Got my son's little... Um, I couldn't find my water bottle and I was in a rush to get out the door so I got my son's. Whatever's convenient. There's, a, there's an evangelist called Ray Comfort. Uh, he's, he's a New Zealander and he lives in California. You can watch him on YouTube. And he has this way, he does evangelism on the streets of California, and he has a way of approaching people. And it's not subtle, but it's very, very effective. So he meets somebody on the beach um, in their, with their surfboard, in their bikini. You know, it's very much people doing normal things that they would do on the beach in California. Uh, and uh, he asks them if they're sinners. And mostly they say, oh, no, I'm not a sinner. And they're kind of shocked at the idea that they're a sinner. And then he says to them, so... If you were to die today, are you going to heaven? And most of them say, well, yes, I'm a good person. And then he asks them a series of questions. He asks them all, all of them the same questions, whoever he talks to. He says, have you ever used the name of Jesus as a swear word? And they think for a minute and they say, well, yes, I have. And then he says, have you ever disrespected, dishonored your parents? And they say, well, yes, I probably have. And then he says, have you stolen anything? And they say, yes. And then he says, have you ever told a lie? And they say, yeah, many lies, actually. And then he says, have you ever looked at somebody lustfully, somebody who's not your husband or your wife? And they say, yes, very sheepishly, normally. And then he says, so by your own admission, you've condemned yourself. You're a blaspheming, parent-dishonoring, thieving, lying adulterer, and you think that a just God will let you into heaven. Are you deluded? It's not subtle, but can you see how powerful it is? You see, some pe people keep protesting they're innocent, but most people, their mouths are closed and they are speechless. 
because the law has done its work and they sense their guilt before God in a moment. You see, Paul says the law speaks. It speaks and when it does, the result is that every honest mouth will be stopped and the whole world is accountable to God. Nobody will be able to stand on the the day of judgment and say, I am the innocent one. Nobody, not in all the world. You see, the law in Israel's history had several uses, but it was never a ladder to get the Jewish people to heaven. Those who were saved were saved by believing in a saviour to come. They were never saved by the law. But, you know, the Perhaps the greatest task of the law in the Old Testament, and it did, the law did have many uses, but the greatest task was to remind Israel that it needed a saviour. So Paul says in verse 24, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be made righteous in his sight, because through the law comes a knowledge of sin. About uh, 20 years ago, I became a pastor in England, and um, for the first time I had to... to complete my own tax return for HMS, HMSRC, which is Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. I had to re- and complete my tax return. <coughs> Excuse me. And I kept getting letters in the, in, the, in the mail from the tax authorities to say that I had until the 31st of January to submit my tax return, otherwise I would be fined and possibly face imprisonment. That was, the, that was January the 31st. That was my deadline. So in the November, I sat down with all these different figures, and I tried to work out all the different columns and where to put the different numbers, income expenditure, expenses, capital gains, permitted deductibles, and all these different categories. You know, my first degree when I went to university was in economics, and I thought this would be easy for me, but I was wrong. It was actually very, very complicated. In the end, I gave up in a moment of stress and decided this was a job for another day. I came back to this, this was what, November time, I came back to this just before Christmas, December, and um, thinking that this time I'd be able to finally suss out how to complete my tax return, and I think I spent about three hours trying to do this, and eventually I gave up. Christmas came and went, did all my Christmas sermons, everything else to do with Christmas, and then in early January I sat down again to crack the tax return, spent several hours again, and I finally decided that this was the moment to call for an accountant. And you know, the role of the law in the Old Testament was to alert Israel, and us as well as we study the history of Israel, that they desperately needed help as a nation, and we as a world desperately need help. It is time, uh, the law, when it does its work, reminds us that we need a message of grace, because law cannot save us. We need not an accountant but we need to call the great physician to come and save us. You see, if you and I are ever to be righteous, that righteousness must come from somewhere else. It must come, it cannot come from the law. It takes us to verse to my third heading, righteousness apart from the law. Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed apart from law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we've seen that God's law consigns us to condemnation. Righteousness isn't available that way. It's not available the law way. But now, says Paul, here's a new beginning. This is a new, a new thing that's happened. In our, as Paul was speaking in, in living memory and living history. 
The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from law. It's not the law way. It's not the way of resolutions. It's not the way of trying harder. It's not the way of new dedication to God's will. It's not the way of ticking off our success in the Ten Commandments keeping. This righteousness, Paul is saying, that we also desperately need is not based, sorry, it's based on a completely different principle to the old way, the law way. So how does it come about? Well, that takes us to verse 22. If you look in 22, the, the ESV, which I read to you, says this, the English Standard Version, reads like this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, if the ESV is correct, then what Paul is teaching here is that the righteousness that we need is received by faith. It comes by us casting ourselves on Jesus Christ, on what he's done. And that is true. Paul often teaches that. But I don't think that's what is in view here in verse 22. You see, if we translate verse 22 literally, then we get this. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then 22 says, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's what it says literally. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ. And actually, that's how the King James Version translates it. Literally, the righteousness of God is now manifest, not by our faith, or that we receive it by faith, but it is through the faith of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Paul means. This righteousness is obtained, Paul says, not by my, my faith in Christ, we'll come to that later, uh, that is true, but it is obtained by the faith that Jesus Christ himself exercised. So what is faith? Faith is trust. It's also firmness, it's steadfastness. So what was Jesus, how did Jesus show his faith? He was firm and steadfast in his perfect obedience to God. You see, Jesus came into the world to pay a penalty by his blood. We'll think about that later. Um, but he also came to earn a righteousness as a man, as our representative. You see, where Adam betrayed us and damned us, Jesus remained faithful and obedient to the end, and he saved us. He said in John 15, uh, verse 10, I have kept my father's commandments. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, he was tempted in all ways and yet without sin. In John, so 1 John chapter 2, uh, John called Jesus the righteous one. And in John 8 verse 29, Jesus himself said, I always do what pleases my father. You see, this righteousness that we're talking about here, the kind of righteous, the righteousness that we need, it, it doesn't come by way of the law. It comes to us because of the faith of the Son of God. Because the Son of God steadfastly trusted God moment by moment in his life. He always did what it was right and he kept the law of God perfectly for us. You know, the book Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan and John Bunyan said this um, on one occasion. He said, through his obedience to the will of God, Jesus Christ was stitching together a perfect garment garment of righteousness to give away. Shall I read it again? It's so important. 
Through his obedience to the will of God, Jesus Christ was stitching together a perfect garment of righteousness to give away. So Paul is saying this, but now Jesus Christ has appeared and lived and another righteousness has, has, has come. And it's not the law way. He has earned a royal robe that Jesus himself stitched together and he gives it away to all who trust in him as a gift. This is the other way to be righteous. It's not the law way. It's by him keeping the law in our place for us. He obeyed when we never did. And didn't the Apostle Paul say something to this effect in Philippians? He said that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Um, sorry, yeah, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through uh, the... Uh, let me read it again. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that is through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul is not expecting on that day of judgment to be found with his own righteousness, but to have another righteousness, which is Christ's. And this is Christ's robe of righteousness, which he gives to us as we believe in him. And only that royal robe of righteousness will get us safely through the day of judgment. It's Christ's perfect righteousness, and it's given to us as a gift that we will wear and dress. And that's why Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, And Can It Be, he says that um, we will enter heaven... Not in our right, but in Christ's right, because he won it for us with his righteousness. The only righteousness that is ever worth a dime, that is ever worth a single thing, is not your righteousness, it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, and it's a garment that he clothes us in. So the question is, whose righteousness are you depending upon this morning? Is it yours? Is it Christ's? I used to um, play a bit of a trick on my students in Africa, I used to say, um, we are saved by works, aren't we? And they were good evangelicals and they would look at me in horror. Saved by works? And I would say, yes, of course we're saved by works. But here's the thing, they're not our works. They are Christ's works. He obeyed every day of his life in order that he might be righteous and have a righteousness to give us. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. So, let me end this little section this way. Imagine that you have to sit a really hard exam. It's impossible for you to get 100%. And, but only getting 100% can you enter heaven. And you need help from Jesus. So, here's the first scenario. Jesus prepares you for your exam. He comes alongside you and he gives you advice and tips for passing your exam. He's your coach. But in the end, you have to write the exam. And you know, some Christian understanding of the gospel is like that. But that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel of grace. You see, this is scenario two. Jesus comes. You you invite Jesus to come to help you. And he pushes you out of your chair. And he sits in your chair. And he writes the exam for you. And he gets 100%. That's the gospel of grace. And you're grateful he pushed you out of your chair. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. It's not the law way, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the obedient faith of Jesus Christ. That's what it means literally. And I think that's, what it, I think that's how it should be translated. Fourthly, reconciling blood. Reconciling blood, a penalty paid. 
You know, Jesus wasn't only our representative, he was our representative, but he was also our substitute. Look at the end of verse 23, I'm going to read from there. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Paul was hated for saying that. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this is the flow of Paul's argument, and it is complex. He says there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, All have sinned, all fall short of God's glory. But this is the good news, we are justified by grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now to be justified means to be declared righteous. You're in a court, and you're innocent, and the jury finds you innocent. And then the judge declares you justified, you are Declared to be innocent. That's what justification is all about. It's a legal word. You're acquitted of all the charges against you. But here's the problem, as we thought about at the beginning of the message. How can God acquit the guilty and remain righteous himself? You know, in English law, which is probably the basis of many of the legal systems of people represented in this room, um, in English law, when you read about jurisprudence, the principles of law behind behind law if a judge acquits somebody who is guilty then he condemns himself and he himself becomes the criminal and if God acquitted the guilty without punishing them then he himself would topple he would no longer be God so how can God acquit guilty sinners like you and I and here's the answer that God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood or we could read it like this we could, we could put it like this that God put Christ on display as a propitiation. Now, an act of propitiation concerns the, the diverting of wrath. It's, it's language really from the, the temple and the tabernacle. You know, that's why you need to read the Old Testament to understand the New. All the seeds of the New Testament are in the Old Testament. And you know, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest took a, a baby bull, a bullock, and as the people's representative, he laid his hands upon this animal and killed it. And the picture is that the wrath of God for sin is diverted away from the people and onto this bull who dies in their place, allowing God to treat them with favour. This is substitution. The animal is a substitute. And all the animals in the Old Testament, they had no, their blood had no power to forgive sin. All of them pointed ahead to the greatest event in history. Millions and millions of animals died. And the point was that they were to create a sense of occasion for when the true one who would give his blood would appear in the main event of history at Calvary. But Paul is saying that through Jesus Christ's propitiation we are justified, we are acquitted through this act of propitiation, the diversion of God's wrath. You see, we deserve to die. But Jesus comes and he trades his life for ours. Let me. And he, as he trades his life for ours, he bears the penalty for sin upon himself. Let me try and illustrate this. In 2018, um, I went with my family to the north of Uganda, where we were serving in Uganda, in uh, East Africa. And there's a national park. Uh, in northern Uganda and through that national park runs the great Nile River it's an incredible river is the river Nile 
It starts at Lake Victoria and it flows 4,000 miles, 6,000 kilometers, all the way to, the, to Egypt, to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's wide when you're on the Nile. Uh, there are parts where you can't see either bank. It's a huge, wide river. But we visited a place called Murchison, Fort Murchison Falls. And I think Murchison Falls should be one of the um, natural wonders of the world because at that point, the whole might of the Nile River uh, forces itself through a gorge, a gap in the rocks, which is only 12 feet, about 4 metres wide. It's an incredible sight. I've got a picture of it here. This is Murchison Falls. You know, it's estimated that every second, a thousand tonnes of water are thrust through that point. It's a lot of water. You know, it almost seems impossible that such a vast river could fit through such a small gap, but it does. No other natural watercourse on the earth produces that amount of energy in one place. And if you fell in there, you would be ripped to pieces in, in, in seconds. But here's the point, here's the illustration, that at the cross, Jesus Christ was set forth as a propitiation and at that point he felt and experienced and suffered the full force of God's wrath from all the ages. It was concentrated upon him as he's traded his life as our substitute. All the anger and wrath of God against all the sin of the ages was placed upon Jesus Christ at Calvary. So that means that he who was the sinless one was treated as the perpetrator of all sin by God. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus died for our sins. We often say that, he died for our sins. I think we should change it. He died, uh, Jesus died for, for, uh, instead of me, I think would be better. He died instead of me. He died as if he were the one who'd committed our sins and the sins of the world. They were put to his account. We sang this two weeks ago, or I think maybe last week. Uh, Charles Wesley said this, he said, He left his Father's throne above, this is Jesus, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh, my God, it found out me. The Apostle Paul put it like this, he said, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, in Second Corinthians chapter 5. You see, on the cross, Jesus, in some way which is kind of beyond our comprehension, he took himself on, upon himself the sin of the world. So for the rebellion of the human race, God treated him as the rebel. For countless acts of blasphemy against our creator, God treated him as the blasphemer. For countless murders, God treated him as the murderer. For millions of rapes and, and instances of a terrible violation of women, God treated him as the rapist. For countless acts of adultery, God treated him as the adulterer. For the genocides of the human race, God treated him as if he was, the, was guilty of them all. He who knew no sin became sin. For us, you know, you and I will never be able to quantify the evil of mankind. But when you study human evil, it's one of the greatest confirmations that the Bible is right about the world. That we are a sinful race. We do terrible things to each other. If you don't believe that, study history. Come to my history classes. Study history. The Bible is correct about human beings. The history of the world is one of atrocities, genocides and war and conquest and numerous other things. 
But here's the thing. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, in some way that is impossible for us to really understand, he, he bore the sin of the human race. He bore it. He bore our sins in his body upon the tree, Peter said. He bore the judgment for our sins. He became one of the race that he'd made, a race that had rebelled against him. He took responsibility, whereas Adam ducked responsibility. Jesus took responsibility for the, for the sin of the world. It was not his but he took responsibility for it and the eve of the human race. And when he did, God treated his own son as his worst enemy. He crushed him. He was bruised. He was shattered and he was finally abandoned and cast out into outer darkness. And he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the reason why he was abandoned was because he was taking the punishment for sin, which is in the end abandonment for God. He took that penalty that we deserve. And three days later, God accepted his sacrifice. Well, he did immediately, but in three days later, he rose from the dead because his sacrifice was accepted by God. The resurrection was God's amen to the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, but then he was owned again in resurrection because he had been accepted. If Jesus' sacrifice for our sins had not been accepted, then he would still be in the grave today in the tomb. So we began with God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. And at the cross we find its resolution where the law, which has been broken again and again and again, which demands to be satisfied, is satisfied. So how can God be just and acquit the sinner? And here's the answer in verse 26. It says, it, this is, so God, the propitiation of Jesus Christ, him being propitiated for us, that, that God's wrath was diverted onto him and away from us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, it's through the cross that it is possible for God to be just and the acquitter, the justifier of the sinner, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, for us to enter heaven, sin must be punished and it has been punished in the Son. And you know, we've not thought very much this morning, I've got time to think about this, but we often think about the love of God. But the love of God is shown in all of its glory and its most magnificent magnificence in the death of Jesus Christ. What did the Apostle John say? He said, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. John is saying that that was the very definition of love. You know, you get the love of God in all of its glory when you approach it through the holiness of God. If you miss the holiness of God when you talk about the love of God, you corrupt the love of God. Always approach the love of God through the holiness of God. And finally, my time has gone, but my final point is righteousness, a gift to receive. <coughs> so how do we receive this gift of righteousness? We're all destined for an encounter with the Holy God. Uh, one day, we're just a breath away few breaths away from meeting God. How do we survive that encounter? Well, we receive this gift of righteousness as a gift. It says in verse 24, it comes by his grace as a gift. In verse 25, to be received by faith 
by trust. In verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ receives this gift. You see, this gift of righteousness is available to all who believe the gospel, who believe upon Jesus Christ. So we come with nothing. This is the incredible thing. Many people want to come with something and offer something of their works and their ability, their ethical standards, but you cannot do that. That's the thing that bars you from this salvation. You think you can add a thousand baht note to the price that Jesus Christ has paid, you cannot enter this. Uh, You cannot receive this gift. You can't bring anything of your own righteousness. It is all a gift and achieved by Jesus. We come with open hands, empty hands, and receive a gift, the gift of righteousness. The gospel is the simplest thing in all the world. It costs Jesus Christ everything, but for us, who repent and believe in Jesus and abandon all of our pitiful attempts at righteousness, but believe in him who is righteous, we will be saved. This is a gift for all who believe. And I say that because there's always somebody who thinks that they're an exception. I knew a man in England and he believed that. He could never believe the gospel because he wasn't one of the elect. That he was doomed to hell because he wasn't elect. There's always somebody who believes that this is not for them. But you see, the qualification for receiving the gift of salvation is to be a sinner. All who come to Jesus, he will, uh, he will by no means cast anyone out. He will receive sinners and give this great gift of salvation, this gift of righteousness. So in summary, we can say that Jesus obeyed. He obeyed when I never did. And he paid a debt that I could never pay. And believing that, will change your life forever and it will, it, will, uh, it will see you safely to your eternal home in heaven. And when we understand our need to be forgiven, <coughs> we have an Olympic need to be forgiven, uh, then all our other needs in life pale into insignificance. We need to be reconciled to God by his blood, through his blood. So we sing, don't we, sometimes, once we were his enemies... Alienated from God. But now we sing we are seated at his table. We are reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. We are no longer under his condemnation. But if we believe in him, we are not only, not only accepted in the beloved, but we, are, uh, under, we, we, we live a life under his favour, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in his family forever. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.